0: Well, I thought at length this past few weeks on what to preach on the first Sunday of this year. And uh, it is through fellowship. Fellowship is such a precious gift because one of the great joys of fellowship is to discover that what you're struggling with, you're not alone. That the burdens that you're carrying, that disappointments and the pain of one's heart, through fellowship, uh, you discover. You're not the only one wrestling with these issues. And for the past several weeks, through uh, several uh, discussions with many of you, in person and over the phone, I've discovered the burden that I've been carrying for many years, that I'm not alone, that uh, many of you carry these burdens as well. And I have to believe that if I hear from five to ten people in the church and they all struggle with the same thing, it is, it is not limited to them. It, it is um, experienced by a majority, if not everyone here at Cornerstone to some degree. And that's the issue of uh, family, extended family, and spending time with them over Christmas and New Year's. You know, for me, Christmas and New Year's when I was young it was just food, folks, and fun, Right? It was the most wonderful time of the year. Can't wait for Thanksgiving. Can't wait for Christmas and New Year's. You know, gift exchange or just receiving gifts. You're a kid. Who cares? Right? You don't give gifts. Just receive gifts. Play with gifts. Stay up late. Do the countdown. Sing that weird German song that only, only the, you know, the first verse, and you're, you're humming the rest of the way. And it's just you're, you're off from school, and it's great. Now, as you get older, like, it changes. Right? It, it gets different. You meet with relatives or your siblings and parents and Christmas becomes a little bit more of a difficult time, more of a a pressing time, a time when you're reminded of um, unresolved conflicts, you're reminded of unresolved uh, relational issues, some that you're involved in and some that you're not involved in and you're, you notice some people that are not there at family celebrations, and you remember why they're not there. And, you know every family, is, every family is sad. There's pain in every family. If you think you know a happy family, all that means is you don't know that family. All you've seen is you've, you've uh, you know, walked, by, walked in their home once or twice and saw their nice pictures on the wall, and you fell for the advertising. That's all it means. Uh, every family is sad, but every family is sad for their own unique reasons. Every No family is sad for the same reasons. Right, so there is someone living in blatant sin, addicted to certain things, and their lives are spiraling downward, and you're reminded of that at that gathering. Uh, you know, just a lot of families... There's a phenomenon in America right now where all these people refuse to talk to their parents. Right? So I understand if the parents, dad, and mom have done horrendous things. You know, abuse, I mean, all those things. But it's not for those reasons, for just somewhat petty reasons. All these adults refuse to talk to their parents. Those things become pronounced during the season. And... You know, I don't know why, who orchestrated these events, but why Why do we have Christmas like in July or like, I don't know, I don't know, maybe September and we can kind of spread out the holidays. So we have Thanksgiving and, and then November and then Christmas and then New Year's, you Just we're just packed and and all these things are brought to the forefront and uh, talking to many of you, you, you know, for, for, for many of you, this is not the happiest time of the year, this is the most burdensome time, most heartbreaking time, many of you are glad it's over. And I think for Christians, it's uh, intensified because, especially if we have family members whom we love, who are not Christians, and every time you meet them, you sense their hearts are hardening towards the gospel. Their hearts are more and more close to Christ. And maybe you're the only Christian in your family, so you go to these events and you feel very alone, very isolated. And all that they do to celebrate these seasons is so empty, it's so meaningless, it's so fleeting and man-centered that you can't really join with them in celebrating. Um, so for Christians, it's a it's it's like a salt in the wound. It's even more difficult for us. So there are so many things that can be said to kind of uh, address these issues. Um, things that help me is, uh, you know, you're salt and light. You are in this. You're not of this world, but you're to be in this world. And the place where I need to be shining my light, the place where people feel the influence of my saltiness, is my family. So, so I'd rather not, you know. Spend time with them. I'd rather, you know, be doing a thousand. I'd rather be going to the dentist than uh, spending time with, you know, the, the, this group of relatives. I go with joy because it's the mission field. It is my Nineveh, the Jonah in my heart. I want to go somewhere else, but this is the mission field, and I need to go with joy, with, with humility, with with gladness to herald the gospel. Um I need to what helps me is uh you know Pastor John Smith said this years ago he said you can't do anything about the heritage given to you uh but you can you have influence and control over heritage that you leave behind so you know my parents you know our our thanksgiving dinner was at Peking Gourmet <laughs> uh you know with uh with our chinese friends there you know like uh You know, waiters and waitresses. I mean, we didn't have family meals. We didn't celebrate. We never had a Christmas tree. We never had, like, just these meaningful times around the Word. And it always felt empty to me. I can't do anything about that. I can't try to change them. But what I can do is influence how I conduct myself as a husband to my wife and how we approach the season, how we lead our children and... Not about gifts and toys and just these you know, fireworks, whatever. It's, it's about Christ. Um, and another thing that helps me is, as far as up to you, uh, live in peace with everyone. So there are all these conflicts in relationships, in the family. Uh, our role as Christians is to be uh, peacemakers and to, uh, as far as up to us. Not to add to the conflict, not add to, to the fire, but to to bring Christ to, to be a peacemaker. I can say I'm gonna talk about a lot of these things this, this this morning, but really ultimately it comes down to this one central issue uh the issue of forgiveness. The issue of forgiveness. Um we respect the pastor wrote, nearly all the problems facing people who seek counseling are rela- related in some way to forgiveness. So whatever the issue in the family, the heart issue is the one of forgiveness. And so as Christians, you can't control, you can't tell them what to do, but as before God, the Holy Spirit dwelling with us, we can make decisions. And that relates to the one of Forgiveness. And that's the hard issue. It's so much more uh, easier said than done, is it not? So much easier to just say. It's almost glib how we say, oh, you should forgive her. Oh, you should forgive him. But when that issue comes into our lives and we are hurt, we are wronged, we are offended. Provokes in us so much of sin that's already within, right? So, like when we when we succeed in life, or when we face disappointments or sorrows in life, those are dangerous times because it brings out what's already in our hearts, right? And in times of like tranquility or peace, we don't know what's in our hearts, but when good things happen to you, wow, like that's when you find out what's really in that person. When that person succeeds, right? Or when that person suffers or fails or it's wrong, and you, you really see what's in one's heart. And when we are wronged or offended, man, the, the ugliest monsters come out of our hearts, and all that pride, and all that, that devil, the self righteousness devil comes out, um, the malicious anger comes out, bitterness, resentment, you know, and, and almost to a point where we lose control of ourselves, where we can't, we lose sleep because. You think of one wrong offense, you know, how you're done wrong one way. And memory is like sequential, it's like it's uh, connected. And so it just leads to, oh, yeah, that, that wrong and that offense. Or oh, remember what that happened. And two, three hours later, you've been just nursing that monster in your heart and feeding it and caring for it. And it's leading you to a place where it's not Calvary, that's for sure. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not toward Calvary uh it's uh it's anything any place but uh one author's honest prayer is a christian pastor he wrote wrote out his prayer his honest feelings uh when he's wronged he said god i cannot forgive him in my own strength in fact i do not want to forgive him at least until he has suffered for what he did to me He does not deserve to get off that easy. Everything in me wants to hold it against Him and keep a high wall between us so He can never hurt me again. But Your Word warns me that unforgiveness will eat away at my soul and build a wall between You and me, between God and Him. And most importantly, You have shown me that You made the ultimate sacrifice giving up your own son in order to forgive me. Lord, please help me want to forgive. So it's not, I'm just going to begrudgingly, out of sheer obedience, force myself to say those words. God, change my heart. Give me a new heart. Give me a genuine desire to want to forgive. Please change my heart and soften it so that I no longer want to hold this against him, change me so that I can forgive and love him the way you have forgiven and loved me. It is the most difficult thing to practice with loved ones, right? Strangers, you know, even friends, co-workers. The most difficult place is family members—my parents, siblings, and relatives. So with that. Let's open our Bibles and let's look at a text concerning forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 35. <clears throat> Matthew 18, 15 through 35. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, There am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants when he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents and since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had (coughs) and payment to be made so the servant fell on his knees imploring him have patience with me and I will pay you everything He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your No concept is more foundational to Christianity or more important in your relationship with God or in your growth as a Christian than the issue of forgiveness. Forgiveness reflects the highest human virtue because it so reflects the character of our God. We are most like God when we forgive Nothing so much demonstrates God's love in our hearts than forgiveness. That's why Paul said in Galatians 3.13, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. And so we see the, the, the power, the engine, the motivation the strength behind our forgiveness, the reason for our forgiveness. We are to forgive because we have first been forgiven by Christ. It is Christ's love that compels us. We are not like secular humanists who forgive out of their own good, their own selfish interests. They're just being pragmatic. They're doing it for themselves. No, we we don't forgive for ourselves. We don't forgive so that we can sleep at night. We forgive because Jesus first forgave us. Uh, it is uh, essential for unity in relationships. It is essential in the church. You know, I, I mentioned um, you know family, but maybe Sunday is the hardest day for you because there is unresolved conflict with people in the church. Maybe here at Cornerstone, there are still issues between you and someone else. And that is what's keeping you from worshiping God, from true unity in the church. Christians are to be the most forgiving people in the world because we have been the most forgiven. So what does it mean to be, what does it mean to forgive? The biblical definition of forgiveness is uh, throughout the Bible the idea is of release. It's of sending away. It's of letting go. It's the idea of canceling a debt. Inheriting the concept of forgiveness is an idea of owing something, being in debt. It's right? a debtor, you're the daddy and you, you let that go. You cancel it. Right? you, You rip up that account. You, you push delete. In biblical terms, therefore, forgiveness is the loving, voluntary cancellation of a debt. It is much more than just pardoning someone because a pardoned criminal is still guilty. Right? You might not go to jail, but you still have that on your record. Right? You still have that on your conscience. You still have that in your relationship to the government or the people that you wronged. The punishment's gone, but not the guilt. Guilt remains. But Christ's forgiveness means that not only is the punishment gone, but so is the guilt. Sinner has been <coughs> pardoned but also cleansed. To forgive someone means that account is clean, that we do not hold the person to that sin any longer. We no longer hold the person guilty of that offense. Now, this is so much easier between Christians. So much easier because it's clearly uh, directions that are given to us in this passage of how we are to deal with sin within the spiritual family, the church of God. So if someone sins against you, and you know it's Proverbs 19, it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. So if you're able, someone makes fun of you, someone you know blocks your shot, you know someone makes fun of your dress that calls you, I don't know, F-A-T, what was that, P-H-A-T, that was a small, wedding joke, that happened this past weekend, right, someone calls you, you know, and you overlook it, man, that means you're, a, a mature Christian, or a mature person, right, you're, you have a big heart, right, you have a right view of yourself, like, you're a sinner, so like, you're the butt of a joke, who cares, you should be the butt of every joke, because, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And you understand the gospel, right? That we're here for the glory of God. And so if you're able to overlook an offense, man, glory to you. And the greater, the greater offense you overlook, and you can turn the other cheek, uh, it's, you know, God has given you grace. But someone sinned against you, and it's not a minor sin. They, they, they offended you, they wronged you, they, uh, trans- they violated the vertical relationship by their horizontal deed. So it's not just between you and you and that person because that person sinned, and the first and foremost sin is against God. And you understand that this sin just does not violate our relationship; it has violated the person's relationship with God. So you're so concerned for their soul because they do not understand what they're doing. They they violated uh, the relationship with God. You go in Matthew 18, 15, go in private out of out of respect for that person, out of love for that person. You don't want to humiliate. You don't want to. You, know, you don't want to you want to protect their reputation, to protect that relationship, you go in private, one-on-one, brother or sister, this is what happened, what you did. And I think this is, you sinned against God, you sinned against me. And if that brother confesses, well, I, you know what, I had no idea. Or thank you. You know, we, we, this goes on all the time at Cornerstone, step one. And, uh, you know, recently I heard of one where someone went to that person, the person said, I'm so glad someone brought this up to me. I've been fighting this sin all of myself all these years, and I need help. Praise God, someone has finally come to my aid to stand with me against this sin. Thank you for doing this. My beautiful reconciliation. And it's clear, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward here. They, they don't repent. They say, oh, I didn't sin." or I reject it, I, 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 don't, I don't agree with you, or no, you know, you're wrong, right? You're the one who sinned first, and I, I, I was just, you know, reacting because it's your fault. Then you go to step two, which is you take two or three others along, you know, as witnesses <coughs> to this uh, pursuit of reconciliation, and to be objective people to say, who's the... Who's the person that's wrong? And they witness and they say, you know what? You're being extra sensitive. You're just being just really childish here. There was no sin. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it's misunderstanding or it's just a conscience issue or it's just a, you know, cultural difference, right? You're just mistaken here. You're the one in sin because you're making a mountain out of nothing. Or the two or three objective people say, you know what? No, they're, they're what? This is sin. And this is right. And you need to confess. You need to repent. And if that person says, wow, you know, my heart was so stubborn, I needed like 10 people to come and tell me I have something on my face. Now I believe you guys. I repent, forgive or forgotten, never brought up again. I mean, really erased from the memory banks. But if that person is still resolute in their, in their course, then. You tell it to the church. You tell the elders, right? So tell the elders at step three, not step one or step zero, right? Tell the elders at step three, and then we tell the church, and we have our, you know, family times where we tell the church, this person is in sin. We all pursue, and the person says, "You're right. Thank you." We've we've had that. We've had people come up and read letters and ask for forgiveness. You know, we had a guy, I remember he, a few years ago, he was in sin for like a year, year and a half, and we're pursuing him. And we kind of gave up, and then God changed his heart, came, restored to us. Praise God. Forgiven for God, never brought up again. That's why I didn't mention his name. <laughs> Forgiven for God, never brought up again. Um, but if he is stubborn and resolute, he's hardened to sin, then you go to step four, which is uh, you treat him as a task collector. Or the Gentile. So he's not in our fellowship. He's not part of our spiritual family. We He is to be isolated with his sins. Why? It's a punitive measure. Just like, you know, I punish my children. And I, right, we punish our kids. Why? Why do we have them have timeouts in their room without any toys? Why? You know, what's well, the key essence of punishment is we separate, we isolate them, right? We, we you know, <laughs> Ethan's not here. Ethan, go to your room. You sit in that corner, fold your hands. You're alone. Why? Because the essence of punishment is to be isolated, to be alone with with his or her sin. Why? So that they might repent. They might see and be restored. So just like raising a family, a spiritual family, we isolate them. For the purpose of reconciliation, the purpose of restoration, for the purpose that he would confess and repent, so that they might be restored to us. so with Christians, it's so much easier, right so much linear, straightforward, but with uh non-believers, uh, it's so much more difficult right because they don't play by these rules right they, they have a whole different set of rules that they play by, and each person is different. And it's so much harder when your family members or relatives are, are, are non-believers and they've wronged you or wronged someone in the family. Right. How are we to approach this? Um, so again, if it's a minor offense, Christians, it's not the high road, it's the, it's the low road, it's the Calvary road. Knowing that every day we offend Christ. Every single day we offend God. And he forgives. Minor offenses, I need to accept and say, I deserve so much more. Right? But if it's a major offense, major we approach, uh, Ken Sandy in his book, Peacemaker, was uh, very helpful uh, with this point, And that's a book that I would recommend. I would recommend two books. Uh, Forgiveness by John MacArthur. If you want to add a study in this issue. My wife and I read this book maybe eight years ago. And praise God we read this book because it helped us so much, uh, her with her parents and me with my parents. And then, surrender towards me, and surrender towards me. right? Uh, <laughs> praise God my wife read this book. Like, forgiveness, right? So, in marriage, especially, yeah, if you're married, you've got to read this book. We're this great book. And Ken Sandy's book, Peacemaker. And he was saying, um, for those who are non-Christians who won't acknowledge their sin, are unrepentant, do not confess, he, he he says we need to take a two-stage process in approaching forgiveness. First stage is having an attitude of forgiveness. And the second stage is granting forgiveness. So here's someone who has sinned against you and does not confess. So we don't forgive unconfessed sin. Like God doesn't forgive us. He didn't just die for us and everybody's forgiven. No, it's for those who confess to God, I, I've sinned against you. Forgive me, and God forgives. It's not universal salvation, universalism. Likewise, we shouldn't be universalists, like just handing out forgiveness. I'm a doormat, you know. Come step on me because I hand out forgiveness. You know, especially during the holidays. That's not. That's not scriptural, right? Uh, but what what Christ modeled and taught us is. Is to have this heart of forgiveness um, uh, an unconditional commitment that we make to God to have a heart of forgiveness luke 628 bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you right. <clears throat> so we are to not circumvent truth when we've been sinned against, so we need to seek pray for and seek an opportunity to present the truth and appeal to their conscience concerning sin, concerning the offense. We can't just overlook and kind of brush it under the rug. No, we need to have relationships that are based on truth. And we can say, it's my version of truth, I want to hear your version, but I want unity based on truth. And then when sin has been clearly committed and they refuse to ask for forgiveness, they refuse to acknowledge it, then we need to approach it like Jesus approached it on the cross. And like Stephen approached it in his martyrdom in in Acts 7, and Jesus in in Matthew 27, when Jesus was tortured and and, and scoffed and mocked and and beaten up and crucified, and when he was on the cross, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He didn't forgive them. He asked the Father to forgive them. For he understood that if the Father forgave them, they would ask forgiveness to him, right? If the Father indeed forgave them, opened their eyes to see their sins, and they were reconciled as non-Christians to God, and they received the gospel, and they were forgiven, and the fruit of that forgiveness would be restoration of that relationship. And that's exactly what happened with the centurion. And Stephen, same thing, when he was being stoned, he didn't say, I forgive you, right? No, he said, Father, forgive them, or they don't know what they're doing. Right? And the fruit of that forgiveness was Paul. When Paul, right, you know, in heaven meets Stephen, they're reunited, they're reconciled. Why? Because God's forgiveness of, of, of Saul, of Paul, the fruit of that is restoration with, with fellow Christians. So people wrong us. Our heart attitudes, God forgive them. We pray for them. We bless them. And we ask for the greatest blessing in the whole world. We desire the greatest blessing in their lives, which is what? God, would you cancel their debt? Would you forgive them of all their sins? Would you release them? Would you give them salvation? Would you adopt them into your family? That's the greatest thing you could pray for your enemies. You're blessing them. Because you understand... Again, you know, I'm going kind of beating this point to it, to, you know, being this horse to death, but if they are forgiven by Christ, then the, the natural consequence is, right, there'll be a restoration in your horizontal relationship. Right? And then the second stage is, they are forgiven by Christ, they see their sin, and they come to you, and you're like. You know, you're, you're Colossians 3.13. You're 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 just waiting. You're like the the father of the prodigal son. You're waiting, watching, listening for any hint of an overture towards reconciliation and an overture towards confession. Right? You make it easy for them. right? You don't make it hard. You don't make them jump through hoops. You don't make them perform certain rituals to earn your forgiveness. Right? You hear them out, confess their sin, and you run to them and you lavish on them forgiveness. Right? You are generous. Right? You pour out love and mercy and grace and in, in endless, infinite, unconditional measure when they confess, because that's how God has forgiven us. So Peter understands this. Peter understands in verse 21 that what Lord what what Christ is talking about is confess conf, when someone confesses How many times shall I forgive my brother? Right? How many times? So that's, that's the depth of our, like, pride and our self-righteousness. Okay, you know, once, twice, the perfect number in the Hebrew mind is seven, seven times in a day? Right? Or seven times, period. He commits that sin. Jesus answered, verse 22, I tell you, not seven times. There's no limit to your forgiveness. 70 times 7. That's like an infinite amount. It's his way of saying, you know, a gazillion, right? 490 times. He's not being literal. We have a little journal, right? A little iPhone. 97, you know, 98, right? That's not what he said. Oh, 490. I'm done with this person. No, it's, it's, it's a hyperbolic statement, right? Right? That's why in, in Luke 17, when the other apostles heard this, their response was, increase our faith. Impossible. Crazy. Uh, Absurd. This is like, who can receive this? Who can believe this? Who can live this way? This is crazy. Unless you increase our faith, (coughs) we can't can't do this. So, Jesus goes to an illustration. The basis of our forgiveness. When we take our eyes off of the gospel. Yeah, it is impossible. It is crazy, it's absurd. So with this illustration, Jesus takes us back to God, back to the gospel, back to the cross where we see hope. We see strength. We find our our our, our motivation, our our power to forgive. The illustration is very simple. There's a king, he's got all these people who owe him money, and he goes to this one guy and in, you know, in, in this time, they didn't have bankruptcy laws. Uh, you can't just, you know, definitely was a recourse country, right? They went after you and after your children and you couldn't pay money, debt. They sent you to jail where you couldn't work to pay off that debt, right? They sold you into as slaves. I mean, that's how horrible is that, right? So there's this servant, owed oh, 10,000 denarii, huge amount, right? maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so, okay, then your whole family is going to jail. We're going to sell, sell you as slaves. And he begs, right? He asks for a loan remodification, right? He's begging for, you know, mercy and pleading. And he has pity on the servant. What does he do? He cancels the debt. He doesn't remodify the loan, right? He cancels it. It's gone. And this guy won the lottery. So he's happy going home. Can't wait to tell his uh, wife and children. On his way home, he sees a guy who owes him fifty dollars, and he takes him by the neck. Go, you jerk! You owe me my money. Where's my money? Fifty dollars. And you know, like, we're, we can be hard on this guy, but we're all there, right? I mean, when you get a parking ticket, are you happy? Right? Why, why are you? Why we get so upset? It doesn't go on our record. Like for, you know, losing money, that really like cuts us for no reason. Right? Losing money to someone else. When we're wrong, when we're scammed. When someone steals from us. Right? That that cuts us into our, our idol, into our security, into money, into what we worked hard for. What provides for us and our family. Right? I mean, we could look at this guy and go, look down on him, but We have those same heart issues when we lose money. And so he is unforgiving towards this guy. And he sends him to prison because of this unpaid debt. Even though he says the same thing, have patience with me, I will repay, forgive me. Other servants hear about this. They tell the master. And the master, you read this. Verse 32. <clears throat> you evil servant you wicked hypocritical you blind proud servant i canceled all of your debt shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you and the, the argument is from logical lesser to uh, greater to lesser right if i forgive you of such a great debt how, shouldn't you a human being, right? any human being, will forgive a far lesser debt. And then in verse thirty-five, uh, our Lord brings it our home, brings us home, brings it to our hearts. This is how we. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive from your heart. So, the gospel exposes, reveals our sinfulness and then at the same time the greatness of God's grace and mercy. If we, someone asks for forgiveness and we don't want to forgive, we don't want that relationship. You know, We want to be without that person in our world. We want that person to feel hurt. We want that person to p- feel pain and pay for what that person did. And we want not to be close and not open our hearts to them, that shows the ugliness of our hearts and how we don't understand and fully grasp the gospel of Christ. We don't grasp our own sins, the the greatness of our debt and how much God has forgiven us. If we struggle with unforgiveness in our hearts, the issue is not that person. The issue is not how great a sin they committed against you. Or it's not, oh, that person, you know, they're going to do it again. And that person is just no good. And all, it's not, that's not the issue. That feeling, that emotion, that, that heart condition in all of us, that's a symptom of our relationship with our God and not of the gospel. Right? It, it's our vert- It becomes vertical and reveals to us how much more we need to grow in the knowledge of God's grace. That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, right? You may grow understanding the richness of God's grace that's been given to you in Jesus Christ and how we're still eating dirt when God has given us a banquet. So, uh, you know I, don't know, I know many of you, you're still licking your wounds from this past few weeks, right? And uh, kind of walking with a limp with all that's occurred the past few weeks. This is a test. It's an opportunity for you. Are you going to harden your heart? Are you going to uh, make it callous? Are you going to be more bitter, more resentful? Are you going to hold on to your anger? And all that's going to do is increase your foolishness. Right? Increase your immaturity, increase your waywardness, and just make your walk with Christ just an outward, mechanical behavior. But if you, during this time of testing, if you soften your heart, if you confess your sin, if you go to Christ and run to the gospel and God gives you a heart, you pray for a new heart and God gives you a heart of forgiveness, then you're on your way towards wisdom. And on your way of creating for your own life a different life than the ones handed down to you from your parents right? if you're still holding on to your parents and you're, you're saying I'll never, I'll never do that you're, you're still tied to your parents you've never left you're still cleaved to, tied to them right? Right? by walking the way of wisdom are you able to um, start a new heritage where it's based on grace and not works let's pray oh well, God we do uh, thank you and praise you for not just teaching us the truth but um, modeling it for us on the cross though you were reviled you did not threaten to return though you were tortured and you suffered Lord you entrusted yourself to the Father who is sovereign and you uh, walk this course so that you, we might follow in your footsteps and you might be an example for us. Lord, we uh, confess that we fall short, that our hearts are, due to our pride, still filled with uh, self, much self-righteousness and, and uh, ourselves are still at the throne of our hearts. Lord, as We read the prayer, Lord, give us new hearts. Give us heart of flesh instead of this heart of stone. And uh, gripped by the vision of the cross, may we have merciful, forgiving hearts because you have so been merciful to us. In Jesus' name we pray.